Welcome to Frictionless Marketing, an exploration of how modern marketers are building their brands, reaching their audiences, and thriving in this post-advertising world. Today, we're joined by Carolyn Wang, the SVP of Global Corporate Communications at Ultragenics. With a rich background in life sciences that began at Elan Pharmaceuticals, Carolyn has been a key player in WCG's growth strategy and has led BrewLife, a multi-million dollar agency. She's also held a leadership role at Verily and currently serves on the board of the John Ritter Foundation of Aortic Health. Today, we're delving into Carolyn's current work at Ultragenics, a game-changing company in the world of rare genetic disease. We'll discuss their innovative approaches such as broadening access to newborn screenings and hosting rare disease boot camps. We'll also explore the keys to nurturing patient communities and ensuring diversity in clinical trials and get into Carolyn's advice for those new to healthcare communications. Without further ado, please welcome Carolyn Wang. Hello and welcome back to Frictionless Marketing. This is Paul Dyer with Lippy Taylor. Lippy Taylor is an earned first creative agency that's been named the best healthcare PR firm by PR Week in Medical Marketing and Media. Our approach focuses on inclusive journey mapping, community-based marketing, HCPs as influencers, and story making instead of storytelling. With that, I am very excited to dive in with our guest here today, somebody I worked with for many years personally, but um, we're just now getting reacquainted after some time uh, in different parts of our, our industry here. Carolyn, uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I thought we could start by, if it's all right with you, just tell us, you're you're at Ultragenics, can you just tell everybody uh, what is Ultragenics and what is your mission? Ultragenics is a biotech company we're focused on rare and ultra-rare genetic diseases, so those mostly impacting children. And the mission is really transforming the lives of patients with rare disease. And I liked your intro about story-making versus storytelling. I think our company has a really purpose-driven culture and mission um, and thinking about how we can actually change the regulatory landscape, really try to influence um, and support other companies and organizations, especially nonprofits led by parents who are trying to develop these drugs for um, their children and for uh, diseases that really impact a handful of, of, of patients in some cases. Um, because we can't do it all. We really want to try to you know lift the industry as a whole. That's, um, first of all, very inspiring and great, um, I think, um, segue here because you're right, rare disease is incredibly complex um, from the regulatory situation to the financing you know, funding situation, but then also the path to diagnosis for some of these patients is so complicated and difficult. Um, and of course, that's somewhere that uh, a company like Ultragenics can potentially play a role in helping address some of those friction points. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, especially for those who are listening that may not be as familiar with what it's like, you know, to be a patient with a disease of that only affects maybe 100 or 200 people? Well, the path for screening and diagnosis, you know, we are all very familiar, I think, with the term diagnostic odyssey. Um, and in ultra rare diseases, especially, it, it's a very, it's a very um, long, circuitous path sometimes. And 
There are guidelines for newborn screening, but they really vary state by state. And some of our work on our government affairs team is really focused on broadening access to newborn screening, making sure we have consistent guidelines across states and that we're screening for as many of these diseases as possible. We also support initiatives like those at Rady Children's where, you know, they're they're looking at how can we uh, increase, increase use of uh, whole genome sequencing to support newborn screening, different different ways where we can get in there because it's honestly, if um, we can't get these children diagnosed as quickly as possible, not only are they losing ground um, without getting treated, but in diseases where we don't have treatments yet, we can't even get them into, into studies. So it's, it's really important. Um, that's one major barrier. You know, another is in the re in, in research in general, the traditional uh, path to approval, the traditional path to um, development is really hard to apply in rare diseases because you're talking about exponentially lower numbers of patients. So we have to be very smart um, and think about how we can apply the science that's available to us now um, that allows us to do things like identify biomarkers that are show that are that are really related to the primary activity of disease um, and and think about how those can be used for development of drugs. But yeah, it's it is a different area than than most other um, traditional large uh, areas of disease. Well, and it's an area also that puts you know a, a lot of the um, sort of responsibility on the parents, right? Um, in, in trying to navigate and find information, and I think that's what you were referring to when you said that the you know diagnostic odyssey. Um, have you guys been able to come up with any? Any, any, uh, I don't know, any shortcuts for how you help parents get to the right information more quickly? Well, it's funny that you asked that. We actually just finished one of our rare boot camps for parents and leaders of these nonprofit groups. We've hosted one or two a year. Um, and that's really about providing education and resources and networking opportunities for these parents who have to find these treatments because nobody else is doing the work. Um, it's not, you know, obviously we don't think it's a sustainable system. Um, it's, it's really too bad that the, the onus is on the parents to do this work, but we're doing our best to provide tools and resources. So we just hosted it as a three-day boot camp. Um, we get a lot of really good feedback from the parents who attend. We have other companies that we partner with um, that come in and, and provide education as well. But we're thinking about, um, you know, clinical, it's it's everything from preclinical development uh, to how to get funding to speaker training. Wow. Yeah. And, and of course, that enables them to then go be advocates and influencers in their own right. And, and we are seeing um, in some instances, you know, social media influencers with rare diseases. Um, Kelly Barrett with Frederick's Ataxia comes to mind using the new platforms, TikTok, Twitter, et cetera, sort of document their journeys and raise awareness. Um, have you had any experience at Ultragenics working with influencers in that way or um, is it the kind of thing where you th you think that that technology or that approach can work um, even if you don't have a diagnosed patient? It's interesting. You know, there's a, um, a few 
people come to mind. These parents are, are super inspiring and they've had to advocate to your point and build influence in order to get the funding to support drug development for their child. I think of Julie Vitarello and um, the work that she's done for her daughter, uh, Mila, who unfortunately has since passed, but did, you know, develop this N equal one organization um, in partnership with a, a physician. And they're thinking about how to develop therapies um, for diseases that impact, again, like a handful of children. And the, the I, I think the issue that we have, though, is not every parent, not every person has the same access to those types of tools that allows them to build that influence, right? And to do that kind of fundraising. So, you know, it's it, how do we do this in a broader way that is really supportive of all families that are in this situation? It's tough. Um, when you see the amount of effort that these parents have to put in, oftentimes they have to quit their job. It is a full time they're you know, they're mortgaging their homes. It's, it's mm -hmm. a lot, it's a lot. Um, and, uh, you know, but, I, but, but they're, they're really, their stories are incredibly inspiring. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of an inspiring story, um, your CEO founder, um, Dr. Emil Kakis, is I did I pronounce that properly? Emil Kakis, yes. Emil Kakis. Um, yeah, obviously, I mean, a tremendous asset to work with. I, I'll invite you to please share some of his story, you know, here. But then um, I'm also curious from a communication standpoint, you know, we, we started with this idea of storytelling, you know, versus story making. The origin story right behind him, his book, the company, et cetera, is really powerful. But then, of course, you also got to look forward and, and, you know, tell people a story about where things are going. Uh, so I'm just curious your thoughts on sort of leveraging that really powerful legacy with also now looking forward and talking about what the company is doing today. They're totally tied together in some regards. Emil started his career as an academic researcher. You know, he, his the, the first drug he worked on was for MPS-1. He's kind of the godfather of rare disease in some, in some regards, especially in the MPSs where he's developed, I think, four treatments, um, or three, and then another one in development right now. Um, and, you know, his coming out of his experience working on that first drug, and he, he wrote a book about it called Saving Ryan, he it is really what inspired him to both start a nonprofit focused on regulatory policy change, and that's called the Every Life Foundation, and then to launch a biotech company specifically focused on rare and ultra rare diseases, and that's Ultragenics. And he launched the company about 13 years ago, and and it's a it's a company that's purpose built essentially to develop drugs and rare and ultra rare. Um, and I I do believe that it's a different approach than starting, you know, a company in oncology or, you know, in, in cardiovascular disease or anything else. Um, it, it's very deliberate. And again, I think the voice that we have um, to, you know, push for change that can support the industry as a whole is really important. And that's, that's something that, you know, luckily he is very willing to use and, he feels very passionately about the role that we have to play in that arena. 
That's great. And, and um, it's obviously uh, important if the communications function is able to work closely with him and, and integrate that, you know, into the, into the whole story of the company as well. Yep. Um, so, so I, I, I kind of want to open a different door here, something I'm curious about, you know, because you spent uh, at least a decade in, in agency leadership roles. You were the president of an agency um, and now have been head of communications at two different, um, very um, successful companies. A lot of the people who listen here are, are at some point in their career going to have this debate about, should I move from agency to client side? So what would you say to them? Well, I spent over 20 years on the agency side, <laughs> um, or near, I shouldn't say, I think it was 17 years, um, actually, on the on the agency side. And before I went in-house, um, and I, so I really loved working on the agency side, obviously. Uh, for me, being part of a creative team like that, where there's the opportunity for lots of mentorship, lots of peer learning and peer mentorship, a lot of diversity in terms of the of the work, the 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 companies that you're working with, the portfolios, the type of work. It was really exciting and and I do love it. Um going in house and it, it was a it, it was a shift in thinking about how to um work in a very cross-functional way and think about how communications can support problem solving, can support uh, the company business objectives across the board. And that was for me, very interesting too. It's not, it's, it's how does communications shape the culture of an organization? How does it support the operations of an organization? And it's, it's like expanding your thinking just in terms of of the work that we can do. So that too has been a really exciting shift and one that I feel like I'm still learning a lot. <laughs> so are you a client for life now, or are we going to see you back on this side someday? I'll never say never on shifts. You know, I, as long <laughs> as I'm able to continue to learn and grow, um, and some of that is also in managing people and teams and growing with them. There's, you know, there's so much newness always. I mean, you know, the way that AI and chat GPT is going to change the field, not just our field, it's going to change a lot. And, um, you know, here we have a generation that's going to, you know, grow up working with that type of technology hand in hand. So I just feel like there's always new things to learn from the people around us too. So I have to say, I would be surprised, but are you already experimenting with ChatGPT and AI in, in comms at Ultragenics? No, I am playing around with it personally. <laughs> it's probably <Okay>. everyone else's. <laughs> you know, I feel like it's one of those things where one day we're all going to have like our virtual um, clone that is going to participate in Zoom meetings. Pretty soon there'll just be virtual clone Zoom meetings that'll report back to us with summaries, you know, and <laughs> we don't I'm looking have forward to, to that. We don't have to attend conference calls anymore. No, I don't. I don't know. Um, I I think it's a little too early. You know, is what I would say. Just like with autonomous driving on my vehicle, sometimes it tries to kill me when it doesn't recognize a shadow on a 
highway. Oh, uh, we have a little ways. We have a little ways to go. Still, <laughs> not quite. Not quite meeting the full promise just yet. Right. Right. Exactly. So you mentioned, you know, as you were talking about the agency experience, uh, you know, you mentioned the diversity of thought, and of course. Diversity and inclusion um, has been a, a major topic um, in the agency landscape. Um, and FDA really sort of put a whole different level of emphasis on it for the healthcare landscape just in the last 12 plus months. Um, before that, I would actually say the healthcare agencies were not doing a great job in that area, even compared to their peers in other sectors. Um, Curious, you know, like what is the the role of DEI at an at an organization like yours where you're laser focused on such a small patient population and such a small group of specialists who can treat it? Um, you know, so what does inclusivity look like in a world like that? It's a really good question. It's one that we talk about. Um, I work with the ESG group at my organization and we've, you know, I think the company has done an incredible job of supporting IND kind of from the beginning within our, you know, employment strategy and within our culture. Um, one of the first hires that Emil made was actually um, a head of culture strategy, which was brilliant. And <clears throat> we've done a lot of work in that area. I think we have a pretty diverse and, you know, representative uh, employee population, although we can always, it's something you're always focused on. It's work that you're always doing. And we've invested a lot in that area. The question is really, how do we ensure that we're being as inclusive and representative, obviously, in our studies as we can be? And that is a much harder, much harder problem to solve. But we, the way that we have, you know, invested in this area and, and ensured that we're doing the best that we can is by, you know, we have offices across Latin America, in Europe and, and EMEA region. And we are, you know, we have these studies going in these, in all these different areas. Um, and, you know, during the pandemic as well, I think that like a lot of other companies, we looked for ways that we could make it much easier to, participate in our studies remotely. And, um, you know, that's, it, it's, it's just about, I think, making it as accessible as possible. And we support diagnosis, you know, in other regions as well. Um, so it's, it's a hard one though. That's a tough one to mm -hmm. solve, especially like you said, where you're dealing with really small populations of patients. Mm-hmm. So, so the FDA has launched a new uh, program, um, the you know, patient-focused drug development program, so relatively new, where what they're looking to do is sort of give more voice or more involvement to patients and caregivers in the drug development process. Um, I'm curious your thoughts on that, again, as it relates to, you know, not just rare disease, but sort of the, you know, drug uh, landscape at large. How do you foresee the sort of the future of this evolving with, you know, embracing patients in the actual drug development process? Well, I think it's critical. And it's something that we have done since the very beginning. 
I think what we have found in rare disease, and I think this applies probably across most diseases, is that the patients know way more about their disease. And in this case, it's a lot of times it's parents, right? They know a lot more about the disease and how it impacts their children than the physicians themselves. And it's really important to work with those parents to understand what outcomes are going to be meaningful to them. And we've found that understanding that at the very beginning supports the endpoint design, supports the clinical trial design, and it, it ultimately it impacts labeling. And that's really important for the patients and, and for the patient community. So I think it's, I think it's really smart. Um, uh, I also, you know, I think too, that um, in a way that's going to embrace uh, our ability to collect real world evidence now um, and uh, understand how, you know, drugs are working in the real world and the impact that they're really having on patient lives. Yep. Yep. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. And it's, it's interesting that, you know, it takes such a, um, it takes a disease that physicians had never heard of to convince them that patients should be, yeah, you know, should have something to say about the therapies that are being developed. Um, another, you know, another sort of aspect of this is, you know, you mentioned the rise of AI, but even if we think back sort of web 2.0, I guess, right, the rise of patient communities, these online communities, they really were a game changer in rare specifically for patients and you know, parents that could find other parents that were dealing with the same things they were and that, you know, they wouldn't find that normally in their, you know, their local communities, et cetera. Um, so I guess sort of a two-part question. First is, you know, have you seen those technologies, those communities as something you're able to work with, you know, rather than, you know, bringing people in in person for the boot camps, those kinds of things, but like, like, you know, working directly through those online communities, um, you know, and then second is like, as these technologies keep developing and evolving, like, how do you stay on top of it and decide when's the right time, you know, to, I don't know, like launch a new online presence or something like that? The patient communities are integral to, to our work. I, um, we, I think, you know, really all of our communications flow through those advocacy groups. We want to make sure that um, we're arming the advocacy leaders um, with as much information as possible to support their communications to their constituents. Uh, so, we feel that that partnership is really important um, and we'll do what, whatever we can really to support those um, communities and those advocacy groups that um, I'm not the second. Can you tell me a little bit more? Of the second, yes. second question. Sorry, sorry. So, well, so we talked about, you know, like kinds <laughs> of online communities. We talked about in some cases, you know, influencers on TikTok. We talked about chat GPT. But there's got to be like a, you know, some filters we put against as technologies, you know, come out, is it going to be really valuable for, you know, what you're doing from a communication standpoint or not? It's like, how do you decide, you know, instead of just saying like, all right, like people are using Twitch now to communicate, like we should be there too. You know, how do you put those filters in place to decide when's the right time to get on one of these new sort of trending technologies? Yeah, we want to... 
frankly, we want to be where the communities are. Um, Facebook is obviously a really important community builder uh, in our space and in healthcare more generally. So for us, that's probably the most important tool. Um, you know, we leverage YouTube for recorded webinars and webcasts that we do. Um, but again, we're going to work really with the patient advocacy groups. We're going to follow their lead. So we'll, um, we'll host webinars in partnership with them for their communities. And if, you know, they want to use TikTok, if they're going to be up and, you know, on Twitch, which I haven't seen yet, um, but, but again, never say never, um, then we'll follow them there and we'll, um, and we'll make sure that, that we're able to reach their communities where they are. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. So you mentioned healthcare in general. You mentioned your 17 years agency. Am I right that you were you were healthcare from the start, right? Well, yes. I actually um, <laughs> I started off my career uh, in in a small boutique agency that was focused on tech. It was during the tech boom, and that was back in 1999. Kind of aging myself here. And um, they were acquired by Ogilvy. And so I very quickly, because of my background um, out of college was in sciences. So very quickly kind of moved over into their healthcare practice. Um, but it allowed me to kind of move into digital health as um, those lines started to blur later on. So this is something that I get asked a lot about and I try to counsel people about when, you know, the, like all the university comms programs will come through the Lippy Taylor offices and we'll talk to all the kids that are graduating. And without fail, most of them sitting there are like starry eyed over Nike or Glossier or, you know, whoever. And I'm like, you guys got to look at healthcare. Um, and it's usually a little bit of an uphill battle at that life stage. But um, I'm curious, first of all, what would you say to kids coming right out of college right now, they want to have a big career in comms. What would you say to them about healthcare as a, something to consider? And then what other advice would you give to them? Well, I definitely think agency is a great place to start to build that really broad base of knowledge and understand kind of the world that you're operating in and the different tools that you need to have. So I, I would start there. Um, Healthcare, especially now, it's such an exciting time, right? We really are kind of in this in this golden age, as, as people are saying, in biotech and in digital health, right? I mean, we just have so much. We've we've the science has progressed so far. We have so much new technology at our fingertips. It is, I think, going to be a time of really incredible innovation. We have to make sure that regulation can keep up with the innovation. But this is this is a really exciting time, I think, for people to be jumping in and getting a start, um, be, because it's uh, it's just never never been a time like this <laughs> in the space. Um, I'm obviously have drunk the Kool Aid, but um, you know, I think if you want to be upstream and you want to be focused on consumers and and that really broad audience, then digital health is a great place to be. Um, right? It's really about arming people with information to make good decisions. And, and it's all about prevention. 
Um, but if, and then you, you know, if you want to focus in more and uh, on specific disease areas, you can kind of go from there. Um, and if you're interested in the science, um, going in and working with a biotech or a pharmaceutical company is a great place to be too. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's, uh, you know, great opportunity. So, so you mentioned there, you know, consumers, and we talked about the role of patients in drug development now and how parents oftentimes are the ones that have to really push for this with their physicians, et cetera. We're obviously big believers in the consumerization of healthcare. This is, you know, one piece of the consumerization of healthcare. But I am curious your thoughts around, you know, you think about the audiences we work with, the stakeholders we communicate with, patients and HCPs being two of the primary, you know, groups among them. Um, how, where's this all going, right? Like, like, what's the changing role there of doctor versus patient and how we communicate with them? It's a really good question. Um, I, I, you know, I think we have to be thinking about both. I think we're at a time now where people are so much more empowered to search for information, to, um, understand their bodies, understand what's happening. We have to be cognizant of our communications to both audiences. And a lot of times it's, it, it is simultaneous, whether we like it or not. So we have to be thoughtful of making sure that the information we're putting out there is, is digestible to both, to both audiences. Um, and I mean, I think about that. I think about patients, especially in rare disease, again, where you have parents who are so on top of what is happening with their children's disease. They are so on top of what's happening with the companies that are innovating these areas. They're, they're paying attention to investor communications. They're paying attention to physician communications. And we have to be thinking about them as you know, an audience, even if they're not the primary audience, the fact that they are going to be looking at these materials, they are going to be reading, they are going to be asking the questions, um, you know, they're always top of mind. Yep. So, um, so do you recommend reading the book, Saving Ryan? I do recommend reading the book, Saving Ryan. It is really interesting. It, it tells, my CEO likes to say it's the telling of two FDAs. It does give you insight really on how individuals in powerful positions and regulatory can make all the difference on, um, on a drug, mm -hmm. a drug's trajectory and on timelines. And it, it is, it, it, and it's also just a great read um, about a really inspiring story for a family's search for a drug and, um, and Ryan Dant is, is alive and well and healthy and married. And um, it's really an incredible, it's an incredible story. I think he's in his thirties. That's incredible. Cause before, before ultragenics essentially, right. He wouldn't have lived to what, 10 or 11. Well, this was pre ultragenics. Okay. This was, um, this was a drug that was ultimately commercialized by, by a Marin. Um, but yes, it was a very, um, it was a bad prognosis. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's incredible. And it's, it's, it is what that to me, for what it's worth, that's the pitch that I give to these kids coming <laughs> out of schools. I tell them, you know, I was working on Coors Light 
before I, I joined a healthcare agency. And I thought it was a lot of fun. We were giving away tickets to go watch Nelly perform at the Super Bowl um, to date yourself there. Right. Um, and um, but, you know, and then my first dis disease area I worked in was cystic fibrosis. And at that time, it was very similar to what you're describing. Patients would only live till 10. Parents were chronicling this terrible journey. Um, and the drugs that came afterwards allowed them to live full lives. And if you can work on that, it's so much more meaningful than giving away tickets to Nelly. <laughs> That's right. I, I, you in healthcare in general, you do feel the impact of your work in rare disease, especially there's such a tight connection with the communities and with the parents and you know, on social, in person, at events, you, you, I think we're really lucky and fortunate um, to be able to work in this area and to, and to be able to work with these, pe these incredible people. So, and you're right, like the impact is, it, 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 it's tangible. Yep. And that's what we're all in it for, right? That's right. Excellent at what we do and have an impact. So, Carolyn, I, I want to thank you for taking your time and sharing your thoughts here. Uh, it was great catching up with you, and I'm sure people are going to really enjoy hearing this. Thank you, Paul. It's really great catching up with you, too. It's been too long. All right. Thanks, as always, for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your friends and colleagues on LinkedIn? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at Lippy Taylor. That's L-I-P-P-E-T-A-Y-L-O-R. And to learn more about us and our agency, visit us at LippyTaylor.com. Thank you for listening to Frictionless Marketing. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to check out Paul's best-selling book, Friction Fatigue, What the Failure of Advertising Means for Future-Focused Brands. In Friction Fatigue, Paul explains to readers why advertising is broken and provides a frictionless marketing framework to help build your brand in an era where advertising is no longer the answer. You'll learn how to protect your business against competitors and lead the pack with fresh marketing strategies that will help you prepare for a future where the consumer rules. Friction Fatigue is now available on Amazon and as a book on tape on audible.com. Thanks again for listening.